going to leave this to you. So, oh God, this is bold of you to think I'm going to have to read this. I, Jack, do utterly testify and declare in my conscience that the King's Highness is the only supreme governor of this realm, and all his other Highness dominions and countries, as well as in spiritual or ecclesiastical things or causes, as temporal, and that no foreign prince, person, prelate, state, or potentate hath or ought to have any jurisdiction, power, superiorities, preeminence, or authority, ecclesiastical or spiritual within this realm. And therefore, I do utterly renounce and forsake all jurisdictions, powers, superiorities, or authorities, and do promise that from henceforth I shall bear faith and true allegiance to the King's Highness, his heirs and lawful successors, and to my power shall assist and defend all jurisdictions, privileges, preeminences and authorities granted or belonging to the King's Highness, his heirs and successors, or united and annexed to the imperial crown of the realm. So help me God and by the contents of this book. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Last week, we talked about the late 1520s and the early 1530s when Henry was wrestling with what was called the King's Great Matter, i.e. his divorce slash annulment from Catherine of Aragon. Now we're going to go to sort of the next step in the English Reformation process, and we're going to skip ahead to like the mid-1530s, to the late 1530s, into the actual Reformation, like when it actually happened and when Henry established the Church of England. I think this is going to be an interesting one as well, because I know when we've spoken about the Reformation before, we always talk about it in terms of the chaos and the madness. And I think we definitely have the benefit of hindsight when we talk about the Reformation to be able to talk about it like that, because hopefully what you'll end up seeing after um, today's episode um, is that, yes, it was chaos and it caused a lot of upset and, you know, so much changed quite quickly, but it was all very subtle. I think the other interesting thing, though, is in, in contrast to what's going on on the continent, where things are really fast and it's really hard to keep up with everything. Everything in England, I think because it's headed by Cromwell, is very clinically done and it's all done through Parliament. So like every with every new act, there's a new step taken towards reform um, or towards Henry's version of reform anyway. (laughs) So it's all almost transparent, like it's there written down here is what we are doing now. And every every step that they take, at least they go through the motions of making it seem like they're thinking about the legalities of it all, rather than like, let's just go smash some stained glass windows. Yeah, and I think that definitely speaks to Cromwell's training as a lawyer. There's no room for misstep here. The last couple of episodes, we've been talking a lot about 
how this was all coming on sort of gradually and there was a lot of pushback and the reformers were playing the game very carefully and that they were they knew that they were sort of on the way up but they were still meeting a lot of um you know pushback from the more traditional conservative catholic faction of court but this is the mid 1530s is where we really see the tide completely turn in favor of the reformers um thomas cranmer most notably is declared archbishop of canterbury so suddenly you have a known reformer in this very 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 high position of power who can make decisions and only then is henry's marriage to catherine of aragon declared um unlawful it it is annulled it is null and void and interestingly it is done when Anne Boleyn is already visibly pregnant because two weeks later Anne Boleyn was formally crowned queen consort and she was very very pregnant with Elizabeth so this is this is really the turn of the tide there's no turning back for Henry now and this is when Cromwell starts to put in motion all of the actual like you say legally binding um, infrastructure of the Church of England. At the center of this whole thing, obviously, is is Anne Boleyn. She's been waiting for this for so long. It's finally happening. She played her all of her cards at the right moment, and now it's finally here. She has friends in high positions. She's still pretty in with Cromwell at this point, who's spearheading all of this. She still has Henry's ear and his affections. So we're really rolling ahead with the reform agenda now. It is it is full steam ahead. And even though Catherine is still alive and Catherine still has support, she's physically been moved out of the way, at least. She's in exile at this point, and her, her marriage has been declared unlawful. Um, it was declared unlawful in May 1533, and two weeks later, Anne was officially crowned queen consort. So she's in at this point, legally, in England. So now all that really stood in her way was to get people to swear loyalty to her and make their loyalties to her as queen known. So here's where we introduce the 1534 Act of Supremacy. Holy Basically, who likes Anne and who does not? <laughs> I just always find it quite interesting the lengths that Anne, Henry, and Cromwell had to go to with the Act of Supremacy to to get this marriage legitimised and to get Anne formally recognised as queen. Because what this Act does, it makes uh, effectively any kind of wrongdoing against the monarch, whether, you know, we're saying we don't accept the title as head of the church, we don't accept Anne as queen, you know, or actual physical threat to the monarchy is tantamount to treason. The changes in to the treason law and to the threat of the monarchy is really interesting because they've pretty much been left alone for at least 200 years. And then at this point, Henry and Cromwell coming in and be like, no, no, we're not having anybody question this anymore. Like, that, we, we, we've come this far. We need to keep going. What the act does is declares that Henry is the supreme everything in England. His word is law. Uh, and then the thing that we most remember it for is that it makes Henry or or the monarch in general, even even for you all today, is head of the Church of England, sorry, supreme head of the Church of England. So this is Henry saying, screw the Pope. His word has no more uh, weight here. It is just me and what I want. The monarch is in control of all things. 
And uh, there's a quote, there's a quote from it that specifically says that the crown will enjoy all honors, dignities, preeminences, jurisdictions, privileges, authorities, immunities, profits, and commodities to said dignity. So this is absolute power. Absolutely. This is putting the king at the heart of the whole of society. You know, the secular side, the the spiritual side, the I, I don't know. Anything you can swing a bag of cats at, Henry's, Henry's touching. He, he is the be-all and end-all of it, really. I don't know what your thoughts are. I always think it's borderline tyrannical, or like what we kind of think as tyrannical. No, but that's, that's absolutely true. Um, it is somebody taking full, complete power over his kingdom. And I think it's interesting, though, the wording of it tries to be a lot more subtle about it. It doesn't, it, it lists all these things that Henry has charge of, specifically the church, because that's the point. But it, it, the way Cromwell writes it, it acts like this is all known. This was all established. We're just now telling you. So it's not like they created the title for Henry. Henry was always the head of the church in England. It just took us this long to realize it and set it down to paper. Like Cromwell constructs this whole um, precedent for English kings having control over spiritual the spiritual jurisdiction in their kingdom so it doesn't look like they are making it up as they go along even though that's exactly what they're doing. I think it's something along the lines of that it's written in England's destiny. It's almost Arthurian and, you know, very round table-esque in the way that he words it. And he's like, well, you can't argue with this. Like, literally, we're at this point, we're just manifesting the destiny that's always been here. We're just putting it into action. Yeah, it's almost like it gives it a sense of um, Henry's just doing right by his country. I don't know. It just sounds, the way that it's worded, it just sounds very majestic and not at all like he's just doing this to get rid of a woman. Cromwell has the gift that not many other people do where he will argue with you. He won't even argue with you. He'll just talk to you. And by the end of the conversation, you're leaving thinking he's the smartest man in the room and that his point is your point because that's what he's told you. Almost downright terrifying in the way he's able to manoeuvre everything to his advantage at this point. And at this point, it's also still to Anne Boleyn's advantage as well, because this, as we said, this act of supremacy is not only letting Henry know who supports his new marriage and his takeover of the church. It's also letting Anne know where she stands in the minds of people in Parliament. Early on, it's met with some skepticism and the people who end up going with it are really only just going with it because they feel like they have no choice. But it is met with quite a bit of resistance, which, um, as you say, is why they add on the Treason Act, which is specifically to persecute anybody who does not submit to the new Act of Supremacy. Yeah, and I think there's always one really keen example that always sticks in my mind, and I always think it's a bit sad, and she's um, a young woman called Elizabeth Barton, um, and she's referred to as the Holy Maid of Kent, and she's one of really the first people to fall prey to the new Henrician uh, Reformation and the reforms that are taking place. She was detained for treason for prophesying the early death of Henry, should he marry Anne. Yeah, and it was really easy for 
and to tell uh, who would be against her. I, that was one of the whole reasons that the Treason Act was created was to basically scare people into submission because she knew that she wouldn't be able to win the hearts of certain people like Thomas More, but she would at least probably be able to push them to the edge enough that they would go along with things to like you know Thomas More's family for example took the oath and signed all the relevant paperwork so they were they were okay but Thomas More and others believed that if they just quietly went along with everything without actually having to take the oath and say that they agreed with all of this they would be okay and that was not enough for Anne, that was not enough for Cromwell. They needed to have full assurance that when it came down to it, these people wouldn't step out of line. It's so clever to say, well, I, I know exactly who you are, but if you just want to make yourselves known, come on down. And yeah, I think More, More's a really interesting case as well, because he effectively gave up public life over this. He stepped down as Lord Chancellor and just said, I can't, I can't go along with this. I'm not going to speak out against um, the marriage um, between Anne and Henry. I just, I, I want nothing to do with it. Um, Anne and Cromwell were just sitting there like, pardon me? No, no, you are not exempt from this. Well, and what they're doing is so dangerous and so yeah. novel that they need to know that you're not going to be a threat. Yeah. I don't know, because I know we, we, we agreed to disagree over more quite a lot of the time. I don't know whether he would have done anything or not. I just, you know, as far as Adam Cromwell are concerned, he's too much of a risk. You know, I mean, when... I think, though, he wouldn't even have to do anything. He Just existing in defiance was going to be enough for people like Elizabeth Barton, say, to think that they could get him on their side. Yeah, And Catherine, too, as long as Catherine of Aragon lived... She was a living obstacle to achieving this brave new Protestant world. I'm not prepared to concede on my point on Thomas More because I will die on this hill much like he died on Tower Hill. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but I think I think they realised how much potentially their, their reformation was in jeopardy. Anne knew, and, and Cromwell, but mostly... And I think Anne had the most to lose in all of this. She knew that unless the person took the oath and it was legally binding, that she was not safe. And that's why I think this reformation is so interesting. Like, again, I, I hesitate to call it a reformation because it really has nothing to do with the actual religion at all. But it's 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 the legal nitty gritty. And it's the need to set it all in stone and to have people swear to it. Because they know just how precarious all of this is. And and we see how precarious it all is. Because as soon as Anne goes, and as soon as Cromwell goes, so too does all of this infrastructure that they've built. For Henry, for as much as he is the head of the Church of England, I think it was a very last resort for him. It's not something he ever really wanted. And, you know, would have quite happily remained a Catholic had the Pope given him what he wanted in the first place. What we're looking at now is a reformation where he thinks, okay, what else can I get out of this? And apart from a new wife, there is a couple of other things that Henry could get out of it. Namely, more power and more money. The 
best way that presented itself to get these two things that Henry desperately wanted more of and as much as he could get was, as Cromwell discovered, the dissolution of the monasteries. Cromwell was not a fan of the monasteries and organized religion that way. He had personal experience of studying them under uh, Wolsey, and he found that they were pretty corrupt. They were misusing a lot of the funds they got from the state. So he had this, dare I say, passion project to reform, if not completely get rid of them. And when he presented this idea to Henry, Henry liked the sound of it, not because he wanted to do away with the monks and clerical life, but because he thought, yeah, you're right, I could get a lot of money and land out of them. But also, there was the wrinkle that all of these monks and nuns and friars, etc., being holy men and women, didn't actually owe any allegiance to Henry. They owed their allegiance to God and to Christ and most importantly for Henry, to Rome. That was something, again, that they couldn't afford to have if they are trying to establish this new world where Henry is in charge of everything. What we can kind of see here is just both Henry and Cromwell's eyes both lighting up about the dissolution of the monasteries for very separate reasons. You can see Cromwell being like, yay, get to implement reformation tactics or reformist tactics, yay! And Henry's just sitting there like, money, land, yay! So it's a win-win for Henry and for Cromwell. So what happened is, you know, um, and this was one of the main vices in, in England and across Europe about the Reformation, is that um, clerics weren't learning their their Latin. They would uh, they didn't understand um, the, what they were preaching. They were corrupt in the sense that they just accumulated wealth and really had no spiritual kind of backing or, or kind of basis for this job. It was just an easy job where they could do whatever they wanted, right? So um, and on the continent where you had like Luther, um, and people in England like Cromwell were thinking, this has to change. Yeah, the monasteries and the nunneries and all of these houses were supposed to, in theory, be places of good. They were places that offered charity. They were places that were centers of um, theological study and learning. These were the people who were recording history in a lot of cases. They were running hospitals. Um, so in, in theory, they were all supposed to be really great institutions. And that's not to say that the majority of them weren't, right? But as time went on, they also gained the reputation of being a place where almost like people could be disposed of. Like there's there was the running joke of like, um, you know, like in Hamlet, like get thee to a nunnery, like women who had no other option or women who are otherwise, quote, soiled would go to a nunnery and live out their time there. It was almost like the nobles used it as a dumping ground for all the people that they didn't really want to have to deal with. Or people saw it as a way to gain status where they couldn't have any in their normal life. So maybe if you weren't born into prestige or maybe if you were born into a lower family in the nobility, you could at least gain some notoriety through your, your title there. You know, people lament the fall of the monasteries because they only see that side 
of it and when in reality both both things are going on yeah the monasteries um in england had been around since you know the 11th and 12th century you know there was a big powerhouse movement in um the medieval period of um build building them and they actually took up quite a lot of uh, the landscape and they were a really big kind of imposing structure on, on the landscape. And what they'd done is it centred themselves at the hearts of lots of communities. Um, and like you were, you were just saying, you know, they were the centres for, for learning and for medicine and for charity and things like that. So the the kind of criticisms that were being levied against them by the, the reformers, these weren't new because they'd been around for so long they'd become, you know, the sources of criticism time and time again. But what's different in the 16th century is that this is the time they get absolutely walloped. They're not coming back. Cromwell makes sure of it that there is nothing left standing. Literally takes the roof off the places. Not And not to say that it isn't justified, because Cromwell was aware of all of the corruption that was going on. The um, the funds, I think, were, were chief among his concerns of how much money these supposedly humble people are spending on excessive needs um, and finery and plate and what what have you. But also he's aware of people like like Wolsey who are in holy orders but who are fathering illegitimate children despite their oath of celibacy or um, monks who are sexually abusing younger boys. Like it, all of this stuff is going on and that's becomes the only thing that Cromwell can see. This is what became a very divergent issue for Anne and for Cromwell. This is where we kind of see them part ways as reformers in arms. Numbers that you get from another source, in this case I was looking at um, George Bernard's book about the dissolution, there are 900 religious houses in England and 12,000 people in total are part of this monastic life, whether they're monks or nuns or friars. So he says one in 50 men in England were in holy orders. So Anne kind of, I think, knows that's way too many people to just cut off. So she recognizes all of the good that the monasteries and institutions like them do. They educate, they uh, give charity, they act as hospitals. So she's saying, maybe let's not take away all of their funding. Maybe let's just make take measures to make sure that they're doing the right thing rather than let's just destroy them like Cromwell is doing. But I think Cromwell is in a bit of a rough place because he introduced this idea as a way for Henry to get money. And Henry's not about to let him do otherwise. No. And um, what we see is when Cromwell puts his mind to something, boy, does he put his mind to something? He goes, he, he goes for it. This is where we can really start to see, I mean, he's been doing it, you know, with the act of supremacy and things like that. But the dissolution of the monasteries is really where we can start to see Cromwell flex his muscles in his new title of vicegerent of spirituals. So basically, he's second in command of the Church of England, um, second only to Henry. Because what he's doing at this point is he's doing surveys of the, the amount of land they held, the amount of revenue that they had. And then what this allowed him to do was compile um, the biggest survey in England um, in terms of land and revenue since the Doomsday Book. In the early days, yes, it was about being very clerical, about like documenting what they have and where they're getting it from and how they're misusing it. He's also looking out for the, quote, superstition. And this goes back to what we were saying in the first episode of this series, 
where the reformers were really against anything that they considered to be like magic or miraculous. A lot of the monasteries in England and, and in, in Europe too um, were formed around places that were considered holy. So Cromwell, to make sure that everybody knew that we're not doing this anymore, was going after places that especially had things like shrines or that kept relics. And that's where I think it starts to get a little more reformed. Yeah. And and that that is a little bit later in the early days, in the days that we're talking about. It is very much about the money and where the money is going to go to afterwards. It's always really telling, I think. You kind of just want to tap him on the shoulder, the crumble on the shoulder a little bit and just be like, careful, love, your reform is showing. <laughs> and and Anne too, really. But Anne, I think, is a little bit smarter in this case. Uh, Cromwell seems very passionate about this in a way that Anne, not to say that she's not, but she's maybe not as passionate about this. What she is passionate about is her good works as queen. Yeah. And this is a really, really great way for her to show that she does care about her people and she is doing good things for them she actually wins the fight for a little while in 1536 because in the bill the dissolution bill that kicks off the dissolution in 1536 there is a clause involved that says that henry has the power to keep some things that he does like now henry has the power to pick and choose and a lot of people actually end up coming to anne to beg for the monasteries to remain intact because they're doing things that she would consider to be good, like educating or providing um, welfare to the sick, you know, something like that. What Cromwell and Henry are doing with these places once they're shut down is reappropriating the funds. They're going right into the royal coffers, first Mm -hmm. of all. But then Henry is using the land to raise money also. In some cases, he's giving the land and the priories, like the actual structures, to his friends as like rewards for good service or for their loyalty. But in a lot of cases, too, the crown is selling and profiting off of the land that's being seized. So it's seen as like a completely selfish act. Yeah. Really. And Anne picks up on that, which I think is so fascinating. She's here advocating like, well, if we're going to shut down this monastery, maybe let's make it into a school or a hospital. And Cromwell and Henry are like, but we could give it to this guy or we could sell it to this landowner and get all of this money. They're ruthless. They literally stripped everything from the inside. So I know you mentioned earlier, Kate, you mentioned the stained glass windows, but, you know, they were taking the lead off the roofs. And effectively what they were doing was just leaving shells of buildings so that they couldn't be reused and they couldn't be repurposed because they were just completely exposed to all of the elements and it just ruined, completely ruined. It's jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it is worth noting that some did remain and didn't have a ton to do with this example. But the one that comes to mind is uh, St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. There is a statue of Henry above the gatehouse that you can still see today because they appealed to Henry to continue operating as a hospital. They would be secular. They wouldn't be tied to, you know, the worship of St. Bartholomew anymore, but they would still provide this good service. And I think it's funny. They actually got a new name once Henry agreed to fund them again as a hospital. And did you know that until the 19th century, 
St. Bart's Hospital is actually called the House of the Poor in Farringdon in the suburbs of the City of London of Henry VIII's foundation. Just rolls right off the tongue. It does, but um, no surprise people continue to just call it St. Bart's or, or Bart's. And then it was officially known as that. But yeah, in, in the mid-1540s, these people, these these trained monks were coming to Henry and saying, well, if we can't be monks anymore, can we still help people? And can we still run this hospital? And he was like, yeah, you know, sure. But in those early days, yeah, it was, ooh, who can I give this land to? Ooh, how much money do you have that I want? I think that's quite interesting because I think that goes to show, you know, just how committed Henry really was as a reformer. Once the money's gone, do what you like, friends. Just It's fine. Not to say that the ref- uh, the dissolution didn't get violent, because I'm thinking, like, right across the street from St. Bart's in London is the Charter House where all of those monks were killed for refusing to leave their homes. Yeah. But in, in the early days, too, when Cromwell was still sort of being very clinical about all of this and very meticulously organized, a pension was offered to those monks and nuns who went quietly. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that however many thousands of people it was, what, what, what was it you said earlier? Or one in 50 men. You know, proportionately today, that doesn't seem like a lot of people. But that, when we're talking about the 16th century, that's a lot of displaced people with nowhere to go, which you can kind of then understand, you know, why they fought so fervently for their homes. And there are examples of people coming to Anne as, you know, the king's softer, more more feminine side almost, and appealing to her good graces to protect them from from the dissolution. And I think Anne Anne was pretty much for it as long as they could show that they weren't corrupt and that they weren't bowing to Rome. And, you know, sadly this was sort of when her influence over Henry was waning and she wouldn't live long after this. But she had a chance, I think, to to make this a little bit less devastating had she lived. Yeah, and I think it's a side of Anne that's not really spoken about very much. And I think it is worth definitely exploring because, you know, it is always very much, we do tend to look at her as this kind of fervent, hardline reformer who had, you know, no care for anybody but herself and, and kind of advancing. It's one of the times, I think, where you can actually see Anne's awareness of how much chaos she's caused. Yeah. She's she's a smart lady. She knows that all of these things she's been able to achieve didn't come at the price of the country's stability. So this is, I think, one of those times when you can see her trying to manage it and thinking, well, if I do a good turn now, if I show the people that I care and that I can help then maybe they'll accept me. Or maybe they'll see that I am actually trying to put the pieces back together and create some kind of harmony. And and ultimately, I think, you know, Cromwell probably orchestrates Anne's downfall for a myriad of reasons, but I think this is one that can't be ignored, is that Anne was an obstacle to a lot of his plans. And he and Anne butted heads over this to such an extreme that even Henry noticed and saw Anne as an obstacle to getting what he wanted. Very quickly after this, Anne does outlive her usefulness. You know, we're talking two years into their marriage, really. She's not given him a son that she promised that she would. So, you know, here comes Cromwell promising new land, new money, new goodness, new pair of shoes, if that's what the, he wants. And, you know, suddenly there's Cromwell is the more attractive option. Yeah, as you say, it's just interesting to consider this, this side of Anne that I think the story is being told, I think, a little bit more so than it was before but just getting to see Anne in action politically 
something that she actually very passionately believes in. And you can really see what her reign may have been like if it had been allowed to to go on and continue. But what is interesting, and I think we can pick back up on this a bit more next week when we have a chat about the Pilgrimage of Grace, is then how Jane gets caught up in this and how Jane tries to step to Henry in terms of asserting herself politically. And she gets knocked back because she hasn't established herself in the same way that Anne has and doesn't have the same kind of enthusiasm. Yeah, Anne was clearly so passionate about this that it got on Henry's nerves. Like, Like we said, it became an obstacle to getting what Henry wanted, to the point Mm -hmm. that when Jane spoke up in favor of keeping some of the monasteries like Anne had done before her, Henry reminded her to attend to other things because the last queen had died in consequence of meddling too much in state affairs. So don't, don't meddle when it comes to the monks. With the English Reformation now in full swing, the monasteries are starting to be dissolved and all of the reformers have all of this new power. A lot of people aren't going to be thrilled about this brave new Protestant world. We've already talked about some people who dissented by not taking the oath of supremacy, like Sir Thomas More. But when it comes to the everyday, the biggest pushback that we see to this new world is the pilgrimage of grace. So next episode, that's where we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the rebellion to all of this infrastructure and all of these consequences of the Reformation that we talked about in this episode. So be sure to tune in in two weeks to listen to that episode. We're looking forward to seeing the ramifications of all of this drama. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Callie and I will be talking about the pilgrimage of grace and popular rebellions to the English Reformation. In the meantime, you can leave a review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Long live the queens.